Well, the Middle West Review is an academic journal, although it's uh, geared toward a general audience, and it is associated with or linked to the Midwestern History Association. And we try to publish articles and research and book reviews and media reviews uh, and interviews uh, with people about Midwestern studies. It's pretty heavy on Midwestern history. It's a growing presence in the Midwest. I think our subscribership keeps growing. And I'm kind of a big proponent of people writing in long form, serious ways about our region. And that's the best forum to do it in. Well, let me ask you this straight off. The Midwest, you know, we hear flyover country. Do you have a handle on that? When did when did that become a thing? Well, up until the end of the 19th century or the end of the 1800s, the Midwest was the biggest region in the country. The most press had the most uh, manufacturing and bustling towns and a very strong ag sector. I've dubbed this the Midwestern moment in American history because of its prominence. But in about the 1920s or so, there were some intellectuals and writers and people on the East Coast who started to poke fun at the Midwest. And this slowly grew over time and it became uh, just a, a common thing for people to do. And the current iteration of this is snubbing flyover country. That's what we're trying to fight back against. Some of the things going on in that century, the 19th century, distinguished the Midwest. Of course, Lincoln is, is a big part of that. Well, the Midwest uh, led the nation in terms of uh, developing a strong democratic system, in terms of promoting education, K-12 and college education, in terms of civic participation and uh, people getting involved in the uh, democratic process and voting. And and the Midwest began to dramatically push back against the South and slavery. Uh, abolitionism became very strong uh, in the Midwest. People in your part of the country, like uh, Elijah Lovejoy, uh, carried the banner for uh, ending slavery. And of course, most importantly, in your part of the country, uh, Abraham Lincoln over in Springfield uh, put down his roots, served in the state legislature, uh, served in Congress, ultimately wins. Uh, the presidency based on this new party that was formed to fight slavery. So the Midwest uh, strongly bent the arc of history. And unfortunately, we've lost sight of that and we don't talk about it anymore. Those of us that live in the Midwest probably aren't always aware of this history. Uh, the, the farming thing seems to be interesting now because so few people are on the farm. We still kind of look at it. I mean, I think some people in the rest of the country still look at it as a bunch of farmers out here in the Midwest. And actually, it's hard for us to find a farmer sometimes. Well, I mean, historically speaking, uh, the Midwest was heavily agricultural. And up until the end of the uh, 1800s, you know, by far, the most people uh, in the region were engaged in farming or associated with farming. But obviously, farms got bigger. Uh, There was a great deal of mechanization. You needed fewer farmers. So now there are more people that work in town. They work in manufacturing. They work in other uh, forms of business. But it's still a huge uh, part of the Midwestern economy. And so people aren't wrong to assume uh, it's a major economic influence here. We're talking with John Lauk about his book, The Good Country, uh, a focus on the Midwest. John, when you were writing, and I know you've written other books and you're working on the, the review, so you're you're steeped in Midwest lore. Were any surprises in your, in your, that came across your desk? Well, I was surprised. I mean, uh, given the current day politics and our cultural battles, et cetera, you know, I expected to uh, find a lot of bad news. 
um, in terms of race and in terms of the treatment of women. But I was really surprised at how quickly Midwestern states uh, adopted civil rights laws, how active their abolitionist societies were, how quickly they moved to integrate education. Women's higher education or participation in college was sort of um, it started in the Midwest when these Midwestern colleges started allowing women to attend. And this was not done in the Northeast and obviously not in the South. Um, and so building on that, women began to assert their rights to vote and they started voting in local elections and school board elections and then state elections and slowly won the suffrage. And that was kind of a battle that was fought in the Midwest. We're talking with John Lauk about The Good Country, a book about Midwest history. You, you mentioned in there Van Doren, the guy, uh, the I guess, uh, who came from the Midwest and went to New York. You, you, you kind of finger him as somebody who helped influence this sort of uh, bias against the Midwest. Yeah, no, that's a great story. Well, he grew up in Hope, Illinois, which isn't too far from you. Right. And um, he wanted to become a writer and he wanted to get connected to the writers in New York and he moved to New York. Essentially, he was pretty cynical about uh, what he wrote about the Midwest because he wrote things that he thought New York edit editors would like. And so he started uh criticizing life back there and how impoverished it was and how backward these people were. Even though he had had a good uh, upbringing, right? Oh, yeah, that's the uh, that's the great irony here. And this is how I kind of end the book with pulling back the curtain on the fact that he had a great life and he even admitted he had a great life. But to get ahead in his business, it was very helpful to uh, take that stand. And I, I think that's still a very true dynamic today. I mean, right. if you go to New York publisher and say, oh, I'd really like to write a book about how great the Midwest is. They just got to roll their eyes and not. <laughs> but if you come in and say, oh, I'm going to pull back the curtain and reveal how sorted life in the Midwest is, it would pique their interest, I think. So it's a, it's a dynamic that lives on 100 years later. Well, John, it's been fascinating. You're, you're on the speaking tour, I know, and we, we wish you well. What's what's your next project? Well, this book ends around 1900. So uh -huh. a logical to do would be to carry the story into the 20th century. I haven't made any commitments on that yet. I need to make a decision in the next year or so. Uh, but let's see how this goes. Let's see how it plays out. But a natural uh, progression here would be to bring the story into the 20th century.